Well, we're taking a just a one-week break today from the series through Romans, and we're going to consider this morning Psalm 88. Just a few comments by way of introduction here. If you've read Psalm 88, you may very well be anticipating this time, or maybe even wondering what may be said from this, perhaps the most dark of the Psalms. The holiday season is fast approaching. Some of us are already playing Christmas music. Others of us are judging the people who are doing that. (laughs) Stores we know, I mean this happens earlier and earlier every year, right? Stores are decked out for the holidays, it seems, when school starts back. The holidays though, they're a time of year that even people in the world who don't believe in God or trust in Christ, their time, the holidays are, to any person that should be full of light, hope, joy. But for many, the holidays, like any other time, can be a time of sadness and darkness. For some, the holiday season can be a time of particular darkness or sadness. Maybe that's you this year. Maybe that's you today. Maybe not. But I trust that most everyone in this room has known sorrow. I trust that most everyone in this room has known a time, not just of some momentary sadness, but of deep despair. I, for one, rejoice. I know you agree that the Bible is not silent on these things. Sorrow, despair, affliction, and the dark night of the soul. If you've not already done so, please open your Bibles to Psalm 88. As I mentioned a moment ago, Psalm 88 is arguably the darkest of the Psalms. It is one of the most somber compositions in all of Scripture. For many people, it's not readily apparent how to reconcile the language of Psalm 88 with evangelical hope. For others, the psalm is so dark that they can hardly see how it could serve as Christian writing at all. Psalm 88 is unique amongst the psalms. It's not unique in that it starts in a very dark place, but it is unique in that it remains there. There is no pivot in the words of Psalm 88. It it begins and it ends quite dark. So let's look to it now. If you have your Bibles with you, follow along as I read God's Word. If you do not, the words will be on the screen behind me. It will help you, even as we make our way through the text now and as we're looking at it together for it to be in front of you. This is the Word of God. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonath, a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out, day and night before you. 
Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. We thank God for his word today and every day. My plan for the remainder of our time is to preach a three-part message. Part one, very simply, the text. We're going to walk through it. I'm going to try to give us a good sense and an understanding of what's being communicated. Part two, I want to offer five points of reflection. These will be doctrinal, but they will also be meditation. And then we will have a brief conclusion as part three. So here we go. Part one. Let's look to the text. Beginning with the heading. You understand, whatever the ESV or whatever version you're looking at, that heading is not inspired. But that heading before verse one is inspired. So we will look to it. A psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah descended from, not shockingly, a man named Korah. We read, most notably, of this individual in Numbers 16. The sons of Korah were of the tribe of Levi and were employed in the work of the tabernacle, in the work of the temple. We read in the heading, To the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonath. As with other psalms, you understand this, this psalm was to be sung corporately. So Mahalath Leonath is understood by many to be a term that is musical in nature, pertaining, though, to a song of affliction. So there was a certain way, right, musically, that a song should be done, given that it was a song of affliction. We understand this. 
We sing songs in this church that are in the minor key, for example. We read as well in the heading, a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. Now, masculine, yet word, occurs in the headers of a number of psalms. And it indicates that the psalm is to be an instructive or didactic psalm. So in other words, here, the afflictions and the sorrow of one saint are instructive to other saints. There is debate as to which Heman mentioned in the scriptures is the author. There are multiple men named Heman who are written who are written of, excuse me, in the Bible. It could have been the Heman mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 4 and 1 Chronicles chapter 2. If it is this man, he was famous for his wisdom. It could be the Heman who was a contemporary of King David. 1 Chronicles 15, for example. If this is the man who wrote the psalm, he was one of the trio of chief musicians in the tabernacle in David's day. Either way, it's evident that the author of the psalm was a man of faith and of deep experience. This man was not unacquainted with suffering and grief. Moving on now into verse 1 and beyond. I'm just going to restate this so that we're not confused. Heman, the author of the psalm, was a man of faith. He trusted in the Lord. You can see this from the very beginning of the psalm. Verse 1. O Lord, God of my what? Salvation. This is a man who trusts in the Lord, who understands that his salvation comes from the Lord, who understands that the Lord is a redeemer and not just a redeemer in general, his redeemer, my redeemer, my savior, God of my salvation. He cries out, we see in the first couple of verses, day and night to the Lord. He prays regularly. And even in verse 2, he is pleading, incline your ear to my cry. In the latter portion of verse 9, we read again that every day he is calling on the Lord. Every day he spreads his hands to the Lord in a posture of prayer. In verse 13, again, Heman writes of his earnest pleading with God. I cry to you. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. His troubles, it seems, we're going to talk about how deep and intense they are, but his troubles are on the front of his mind, and he knows, it seems, that he is powerless to change them. And so, he wastes no time in going to the Lord in prayer each day. These words... The words of Heman are not the words of a man who is simply lacking faith. These words are not the words of a man who doesn't trust the Lord for salvation. These words are not the words of a man who doesn't mean to trust the Lord for all things. So to dismiss what Heman wrote as the words of a man who simply lacked faith is unhelpful. 
To dismiss what Heman wrote as the words of a man who was self-absorbed and wallowing in self-pity is unhelpful. In this fallen world, there must be room for lament. Even amongst God's people. Particularly amongst God's people. There needs to be room for this kind of faith that genuinely wrestles with life under the sun. Next in the text, not only though do we see that Heman is a man of faith, we see that his troubles were intense and his troubles were quite lonely. In verses 3 to 5, we see that his soul is full of troubles to the extent that he feels as if he's going to die. He has no strength. He's like a dead person, he says. He is like those who have been cut off from the loving and kind presence of God. In the first part of verse 8, Heman says that the Lord has caused his friends to abandon him. The Lord has made him a horror, an abomination to his companions. And so Heman has no earthly companionship. He has no fellowship from his perspective in his suffering. Beginning of verse 9, we see that Heman's sorrow is so intense that his eyes grow dim because of it. In verse 7, and then in verses 16 and 17, this is big. We see that Heman, in his despair, has a sense of God's wrath being over him. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. He's going to go under. In verse 6, the Lord has put Heman in a very dark place. That's what he says. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Now this is the language that's used of hell. Do you understand this? I mean, to put it in our modern vernacular, it's, I feel, Heman is saying, I feel like I'm going through hell. Or this is a living hell. It's a way that we hear people speak. Verse 18. Again, everyone close to Heman has abandoned him, has shunned him. My companions have become darkness is what our version says. That could very well be rendered, darkness has become my only companion. In other words, this man feels completely alone and things are bleak. We also see in this psalm that Heman's troubles were long-standing. So this is not like a flash-in-the-pan, momentary, like sparkle-and-fade problem. Verse 15. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, he says. It seems that this man has lived a hard and troubled life. We understand this, don't we? 
some people, some saints, experience suffering and pain and sorrow and angst from a young age. We see that in the pages of Scripture. Heman, he suffers and he feels helpless. His mind is troubled and has been for a long time. Lastly, in the text, we see clearly that Heman wrestled with God's posture toward him. And he wrestled with whether he would ever be delivered. You ever been there? Wrestling with God's posture toward you. Wondering, will deliverance ever come? In the latter portion of verse 8 into verse 9, Heman says that he feels as though he is shut in, walled in, so that he cannot escape his troubles. He cannot escape his predicament. Then in verses 10 to 12, notice how he pleads. These words are not dissimilar from the words of Moses in Exodus 33. You remember that scene where God is indignant with the people over their idolatry and says to Moses, you can go into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with the people. And Moses effectively intercedes and says, Lord, but how will the nations know you? How will they know of your glory and your grace? How will they know you if you don't come with us? Similar words from Heman here in verses 10 to 12. Do you work wonders for the dead? Did the departed rise up to praise you? In other words, if my life is over and ruined and it's done, how is that good, Lord? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? If this happens to me, if this goes the way that it's been going, continues to get worse and it's done, Lord, how does that bring you honor? How does that bring you praise? How does that bring you renown? Then in verses 13 and 14, Heman reiterates his pleading with the Lord, but he's unsure of God's posture toward him. I cry to you, O Lord, in the morning my prayer comes before you. But then verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? He clearly does not sense God's loving, benevolent presence. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Heman was feeling something very different than that. Thus concludes part one. We now move to part two. I want to offer five reflections. Again, some of this is doctrinal. Some of this is more meditative in nature. We'll consider these together. Number one, from the text, we can understand and see clearly this. Affliction is normal in this life, and it is ordained by God. Number one, affliction is normal in this life, and it is ordained by God. So God ordains affliction and suffering. He sends trials, and in so doing, He is never unjust, and He never does wrong. 
Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shield and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Deuteronomy 32, 39. The Lord kills and makes alive. He wounds and he heals. Now, having said that, listen carefully. Having said that, there is always a tendency to flatten this. Reduce it down to, frankly, absurdity. We tend to only think of God's sovereignty in all or nothing ways and think of his providence in all or nothing ways as though God is sitting in the heavens literally pushing pieces around on a board. And the scriptures are very clear that God works through any number of means and agencies to accomplish his good purpose. So let's ask some questions here. Affliction is normal in a fallen world and it's ordained by God, okay? Question, do we suffer because of the work of the evil one? Do we suffer because of the work of Satan? Answer, yes. The scripture is clear. The clearest of all places is Job 1 and 2. You know that account? I trust. Satan comes before the Lord, and the Lord boasts of his servant Job. Because Satan has been walking to and fro in the earth. And the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? And how in his righteousness, his uprightness, his trust in me, etc. And Satan's response is, of course, well, he only does that. He only does those things. He's only upright. He only trusts you because you bless him. To which the Lord says, okay, you can afflict him. And Satan does. Job still is trusting in the Lord. Another interchange between the Lord and the evil one, the adversary. And Satan says, yeah, I mean, you know, that's something, I suppose. But any man is okay unless you affect his life, unless you maybe take his life or affect his health. So God says, okay, you can afflict him in his body. Just don't kill him. So Satan does that. But even, you understand, even in the account of Job 1 and 2, the fact that we suffer because of the work of the enemy, even this is not outside of God's sovereign will and purpose. The scripture is plain. Martin Luther and others through history are famous for saying that even Satan is a servant of God. That is a comfort to the saints. It is not as though Satan, in this sense, is an unbridled rogue actor who can ruin and thwart the plans of God. Another question. Given God's sovereignty and providence in affliction, do we suffer because of our sin? Answer, yes. We talk regularly about how sin will wreck your life. But even here, in the suffering we experience that we have brought on ourselves because of our sin, there is mercy and providence and sovereignty from the Lord all over it. Track with me. Sin has consequences. Tangible, intangible. And you know this. So do I. Reflect on your life. 
We are so often spared from having to bear the full weight of the consequences of our actions. Why? Because God is merciful. Is God bound to spare us from bearing the consequences and dealing with the consequences of our own sin? Of course he's not. Because God spared that person from bearing the full weight of the consequences of her sin, is he obligated to spare me? No. Remember, there is nothing unjust about having to deal with the consequences of our own actions. That's justice, actually. Every saint in this room can testify to countless times the Lord has been merciful in the face of our sin. Our lives could have gone a million different directions that were terrible, and God was merciful. We must be careful to not always draw straight lines from our sins to the suffering we experience. Track with me here. Many people in the church through history, and certainly in our day, speak this way. It's unhelpful. It's not biblical. This sin, this suffering, one-to-one connection. You're going through what you're going through, certainly because you did that. We must be careful. The words of our Savior in Luke 13. He asks his audience, those Galileans that were slaughtered by Pontius Pilate, do you think that they were worse than you? No. Unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Or those 18 people, on whom the tower in Siloam fell. Do you think that they were worse than you? Like, did their sinfulness result in that? No. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. John 9. Who sinned, Jesus? This man or his parents that he was born blind? To which Christ says, neither actually. It is so that what? The glory of God. The purposes of God might be displayed in him, through him. The Lord is purposeful, even in the ways that we suffer because of our sin. Another question. Affliction is normal in this fallen world and it's ordained by God. Question though, do we suffer because people sin against us? Answer, yes. And I'm not talking about the suffering that we brought on ourselves here, where we've done something to produce it. I mean, things are done to us, unprompted, unsolicited, that hurt. These things, too, lie outside of our direct control. But again, certainly under the sovereignty and providence of God. So in light of all of this, The language of the psalmist about God being the one who has afflicted him is not wrong. Heman's language is not dissimilar from Job's language. Language that we are told was not sin. Job 1.21 Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 2 and verse 10. 
shall we receive? This is Job to his wife who is telling him to curse God and die. What does Job say? Shall we receive from God good? And shall we not also receive disaster, evil? And even after all of Job's wrestlings and all of the things that he said, at the end of the book, the Lord rebuked Job's friends with these words. My anger burns against you, Eliphaz, and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So we're going to come back in a minute to God's good purposes in our affliction. But affliction is normal. It is ordained by God. And Heman is not wrong to write the way that he does. Second point of reflection. Because of sin, we carry a weight around with us. Because of sin, we carry a weight around with us. So sin, you understand this, is a state, it's a condition before it is ever an action. This affects every aspect of our person and this affects every aspect of life on earth. Death and misery entered the world through Adam and we see the effects of that everywhere. Throughout church history, saints have written of the miseries of fallen man that are a result of Adam's sin. The confessions, even in our own tradition, contained this same language. For example, in chapter 6 and paragraph 3 of our own confession, as a result of Adam's sin, all of his descendants are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, and partakers of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. Because of this reality of sin being a state, a condition, from which we have not been fully and finally delivered yet, because the corruption of the flesh is still with us, we should not be surprised when people suffer and struggle under the weight of sin. number of things that you could think in light of that. For our purposes right now, that reality that we ought not be surprised when people suffer under the weight of sin, the burden of the fall, it ought to produce compassion and charity. As we interact in the church with other saints who are God's, as we've said a lot lately, who are God's treasured ones, compassion, charity should characterize our interactions. This understanding should ground us. We ought not be surprised to see Christians, faithful Christians with good doctrine, suffer under the weight of sin. We grieve it. We lament it. We weep. We're not shocked. And we respond with compassion and with charity. Third point of reflection. Affliction and suffering are not distributed equally. It's third point of reflection. Affliction 
and suffering are not distributed equally. This is empirically verifiable. You don't need me to tell you this. You have eyes. You can see it. Think of Heman's language in this song. Some people are greatly afflicted. They suffer more than other people. Why, hear this, why that is, beloved, is not ours to know. When we start to try to draw conclusions and deduce why people are afflicted the way they are, we most certainly will get it wrong. What this means is that we should never look down on our afflicted brothers and sisters. We ought never despise them, to use old language. The longer I've been a pastor and the longer I've been a Christian, reflecting on my own life, I've come to know that there is always the possibility for an answer that you flat out don't expect. I see a lot of heads nodding in the room. There could be any number of reasons that a person is struggling or any number of reasons a person is in the throes of despair. And mercy and compassion in those moments make room for unexpected answers. We must own this reality that faith in Christ, Christian faith, is not an escape from suffering or affliction. Why? We are not in the new heavens and the new earth yet. There will come a day, God be praised, when there will be no sorrow or pain or mourning or crying of any kind anymore. No sin. We are not there yet. And so for now, we groan. And the creation does too. To think that faithfulness to Jesus produces ease and some kind of immunity from human problems is sorely misguided. Many Christians, many saints through history and in our day are greatly tried. They experience wave after wave of difficulty. Maybe you have had a life where you've struggled a lot. Things just don't go well for you. Nothing ever seems easy for you. You face hardship after hardship after hardship. Well, dear one, know this. None of your trials... None of your suffering can ever prove that you are not a child of God. Again, consider the words of the psalmist here. There are people whom God loves who are his, who don't often have a sunshiny day. Hope is often dim, and joy for them is often fleeting. These brothers and sisters are not less than As Charles Spurgeon said, depression of spirit is no index of declining grace. It's important that we understand that the afflicted among us may very well battle these things for a long time, 
Again, verse 15. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. Heman had been in this place for a minute. Again, the words of Charles Spurgeon. Death would be welcomed as a relief by those whose depressed spirits make their existence a living death. Are good men ever permitted to suffer this way? Indeed they are. And some of them are even all their lifetime subject to bondage. O Lord, be pleased to set free thy prisoners. Let none of thy mourners imagine that a strange thing has happened to him but rather rejoice as he sees the footprints of brethren who have trodden this desert before. We should never despise our afflicted brothers and sisters. We should never scoff at those among us who are trembling under a sense of God's wrath because their lives are hard. Point four. The Lord has good purposes for us in our affliction. Hear this. Hard to believe this. Hear this. The Lord has good purposes for us in our affliction. All right, disclaimer from the jump, point four. Affliction in and of itself is not good. Suffering in and of itself is not good. Trials in and of themselves are not good. Cancer is not a gift. You hear me. The miracle of this whole thing is what God accomplishes through affliction and suffering and trial and disaster. That's a miracle. It's supernatural. We tend, it's important for us, right? This is hard for us to wrap our minds and hearts around it. May the Lord give us grace. We tend to think that any kind of suffering or affliction is bad. In and of itself, it is. But in God's economy of redemption, He accomplishes His good purposes through suffering and through affliction, not apart from those things. James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it joy. Because you're a crazy person? No. Count it joy. Because you're brainwashed? No. Count it joy. Why? Because God is at work in you through this to produce steadfastness in you. James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's a good end, brothers and sisters. Hebrews 12. Many will know the context. The beginning of Hebrews 12, we're exhorted to set aside everything, including our own sin, and look to Christ, who is the founder and the perfecter, the author and the finisher of our faith. And then we're told to consider Him in this way. 
The way that he suffered, the hostility that he endured. The writer to the Hebrews says that in our struggle against sin, we have not yet suffered the way that Christ did. And then he says, remember, don't forget the exhortation that addresses you as God's children. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he hates. No, he disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure because God is treating you as sons. Because what son is there in an earthly sense whose father does not discipline him? God is disciplining you because you're his son, because you're his daughter. What's he doing? Hebrews 12.10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. True words. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Bear up under the discipline of God. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That very holiness that He is causing you to share in through discipline. Our confession again, has beautiful words about these realities. Chapter 5 and paragraph 5. The perfectly wise, righteous, and gracious God often allows His own children for a time to experience a variety of temptations and the sinfulness of their own hearts. He does this to chastise them for their former sins or to make them aware of the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they may be humbled. He also does this to lead them to a closer and more constant dependence on Him to sustain them, to make them more cautious about all future circumstances that may lead to sin and for other just and holy purposes. So whatever happens to any of His elect happens by His appointment for His glory and for their good. Chapter 17, paragraph 1. Those God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved, because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Therefore, He still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they are anchored by faith. The felt sight and the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from them for a time through their unbelief and the temptations of Satan. Yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation where they will enjoy their purchased possession. For they are engraved on the palms of His hands and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. Thanks be to God. This is a transition from point four to point five. 
We've considered some good and true things so far. But we have yet to consider the most important thing that we could consider from this song. Here we go. Number five. I'm going to say it twice. We should hear the voice of our afflicted, suffering Redeemer throughout this song. We should hear the voice of our afflicted, suffering Redeemer throughout this song. You want to know how you reconcile the words of Psalm 88 with gospel hope? This is the way to do that. Above all ways. Jesus, our Redeemer, suffered. He was afflicted by God as a human being. Do not belittle the humanity of our Savior. As a human being, He was afflicted by God. You know many of these words from Isaiah chapter 53, but listen to them anew. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We thought it was his fault. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. No one ever suffered like Christ. Unjust suffering is hard for us to observe. Never has there been unjust suffering like this. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He'll be raised from the dead, right? The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hebrews 2.10 For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus suffered. Hebrews 5, 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Mark 14, 32 to 36. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried from the cross, quoting the Psalms. His affliction was of the deepest and most severe kind. He left the glories of heaven to take on human flesh. He was born under the law that He gave so that He might redeem those who are under the law. That's us. He was afflicted in the place of His people, taking the wrath of God and the punishment of God that lawbreakers deserve. Truly, He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus knew agony, beloved. And He knew the dark night of the soul. He felt the storms of human pain. He felt temptation's whelming seas. He felt the tears of sorrow's rain. All this and more He felt for me. Because He knows my every strife and is acquainted with my grief, I can't be shaken in this life. The friend of sinners walks with me. He was afflicted so that we might be rescued. He was forsaken by God so that you, so that I, never will be. His affliction and His suffering have brought us peace. And we will dwell with God in a new heaven and a new earth because of what He suffered. Part 3, a brief conclusion. This is good for you to know. As a preacher, as a pastor, in moments like now, and in a general sense too, I assume every member of this church is a saint. We want to obey God. We delight in God's law in our inner man. We want to feel the way we should feel. But we struggle to do and feel what we should. And this grieves us. And it troubles us. That's my assumption about you. Because that's how I understand even myself. So question for you. Three of them. What is our comfort? What is our hope? What is our peace? Well, it is that. It is precisely Jesus who saves us. Track with me. What is our hope, our comfort, our peace? Given that we want to obey God, given that we delight in God's law in our inner man, given that we want to feel the way we should, yet we struggle to do these things. What is our comfort? 
What's our hope? What's our peace? It is that Jesus is the one who saves us. It is not the absence of despair that saves us. Jesus saves us. It is not our feelings of Jesus that save us. Jesus saves us. Our hope does not lie then in our ability to be of good spirit or of good cheer. Our hope is in Christ who gently lays us on his shoulder and carries us all the way home. We plead Christ, not ourselves. Not our strength, but his. Not our merit, but his. Not our righteousness, but his. We have weaknesses and sins aplenty. And there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. The presence of Christ, not the absence of doubt, is our hope. The presence of Christ, not the absence of lament, is our hope. The presence of Christ, not the absence of even sin, is our hope in this life. And this is because Jesus will never abandon us. Even when, or perhaps especially when, we are downcast in our hearts. His heart is not calloused or small. You see, there was a covenant made between the Father and the Son before the world began. And in that covenant, the Lord determined to save a people from the mass of fallen humanity. This people the Father gave to the Son. They would be the son's inheritance. They would be saved through the work that the son would come and accomplish. When time and space the son came, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. He became man. And he did the work that was planned for him from all eternity. Father, I've done the work that you gave me to do, he prayed. He made satisfaction for the sin of his people. He fulfilled all righteousness to be their righteousness. He descended to hell to conquer the enemy and to set his people free. He rose triumphantly, conquering the grave and securing bodily resurrection for his own. Beloved, all this and more he did for us. So saint, if you sit here struggling and weary, Be comforted by the fact that Jesus knows your troubles. He knows your frailties. Won't you go to him? Won't you take your sorrows to him? Won't you take your sin to him? He will not turn you away. He'll never cast you out. What is our only comfort in life and death? It's that we in body and soul, in life and in death, are not our own, but belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. We thank God for Jesus Christ, and we close in prayer.